0: Welcome to Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. At booksandnachos.com, you can find over 100 reviews, from fiction to nonfiction, graphic novels and more. There's also links to our forums, our Facebook and Twitter pages, and information about our Podbean crowdfunding campaigns. At booksandnachos.com, we're here to find you something great to read.
1: Welcome to Books and Nachos, the Venganza media podcast about everything in print. It's your host, Stuart, in L.A., still on assignment, tailing Robert Ludlum's chameleon super spy, Jason Bourne. Last week, I sifted through 600 pages of The Bourne Identity to try and figure out who this guy really was. Now sequel novel, The Bourne Supremacy, is going to make the case that nobody is better at impersonating the Phantom than his mild-mannered alter ego, David Webb. Even though there is a deadly imposter that's going to co-opt the Jason Bourne name and kill using his identity. But before we dig any further into that plot, uh, let me just first clear up some things that I intentionally left ambiguous on the last show. I was initially hesitant to spoil too many secrets for listeners who hadn't read The Bourne Identity, but now I'm ready. I'm going to spell out the complicated relationship between David Webb and Jason Bourne, who I describe as the Jekyll and Hyde of spy fiction. It all starts sort of in the late 1960s. David Webb is an American businessman whose vast knowledge of Asian language and culture has brought him to live and work in Cambodia. And I presume that makes him a little over the age of 26, because it's the height of the Vietnam War, and yet somehow he's not at risk of being drafted into the U.S. military. Now, Webb is happily married to a Thai woman, and they have a child together, but that domestic bliss ends very violently and suddenly when a fighter jet drops bombs on Phnom Penh, and Webb's family is among the collateral damage. Webb will actually never learn where that plane that killed his wife and child came from. Frankly, it sounds like the handiwork of Kissinger and Nixon to me, but hey, he decides he still wants to work for the U.S. The point is the tragedy has left him a changed, hardened man. This suicidal widower quits the private sector, and he signs up for a top-secret black ops unit called Medusa and it is an operation run by the CIA, but its members are actually comprised of drifters and lowlifes from all over France, England, Australia, all over the world. Many of these enlistees have criminal pasts, and that might create disharmony should others in the unit learn about these details. So everyone is given a protective code name that follows alphabetically. There's an Alpha, a Beta, a Charlie... Webb is actually Delta. Echo is going to become important later. Medusa is really where Webb learns how to channel all his inner rage into battlefield action. It's kind of what made him the badass. His Delta becomes a ruthless, highly skilled mercenary who leads his team on several risky missions behind enemy lines. And at one point, the unit parachutes into the Battle of Tam Quan, which, historically speaking, was one of the bloodiest conflicts of the Vietnam War, but also a rare victory for the United States. And the implication is that it was a success because Medusa was working behind the scenes in the jungle. But during this fight, Webb catches a traitorous fellow Medusa operative radioing the North Vietnamese... And so he has no choice but to kill him. In fact, this is the only kill he ever makes. Mostly, he's able to do his job without taking others' lives. And that's seen as part of his skill. The CIA bosses are so impressed with Webb, they decide to keep him on for a new project after the war ends and priorities shift to catching the most wanted terrorists in the world. And one of those is Carlos the Jackal. Webb, whose blinding rage to kill has not been sated by years of combat, is happy to sign up for three more years of intensive training at Treadstone 71. It's a secret building in New York City where he's groomed to become this ruthless assassin counterpoint to... Carlos. Treadstone leaders know they need to take extra steps to protect Webb and conceal his real identity. So they have his face surgically altered to remove all identifiable features. And they also want to give him a new history. They actually open up the file of the traitorous Medusa agent he killed back in Vietnam. Turns out that guy is a Tasmanian named Jason Bourne and thus declare that Webb is now hitman Jason Bourne, who recruits new jobs using the codename Kane, the Assassin. Now, the Treadstone team falsifies over 40 assassinations in an attempt to establish Jason Bourne as Asia's most formidable hired gun. They know that Carlos the Jackal has a very similar reputation as a paid assassin over in Europe, And they want to duplicate that in Asia, and the plan is to scare that terrorist out of hiding, to threaten his livelihood, when Cain, the assassin, moves his operations to France, which is the headquarters for Carlos the Jackal, and sure enough... Carlos IDs Webb as his competitor, Jason Bourne, and arranges to have him shot five times on a boat off the coast of Marseille. Rather than dying, Webb sustains that brain injury that robs him of his memory. You know all this. This is where that first novel began. By the time Webb rediscovers all the things in his past and knows who he is, Carlos has murdered almost all of the Treadstone 71 employees, and even worse, Framed Jason Bourne for the crime. And Webb has to travel back to New York headquarters to clear his name. He's got to convince his surviving boss, Alexander Conkling, that he hasn't gone rogue and therefore, please don't bump me off. But most importantly, he's got to face off with Carlos the Jackal, right? We got to get a climax to that story. And it will surprise many readers that this final battle ends in a stalemate and that Carlos gets away. But keep in mind, Carlos the Jackal was a real-life terrorist. He wasn't just a fictional boogeyman. He was still at large at the time that Bourne Identity was published, and it would have been premature, if not presumptuous, for Ludlam to declare this guy dead in fiction while he was still around causing terror in the world. But aside from the bad guy escaping, Bourne's first novel otherwise reaches a very definitive conclusion. David Webb, his identity crisis is over. More importantly, his bloodlust has been quelled. While on the run from the bad guys in Zurich, Webb had taken a hostage. A Canadian economist named Marie, and over the course of the adventure, the couple had actually fallen in love. And thus, the awakening passion he hadn't felt since he lost his Thai wife and child a decade before coming back to him... Webb is able to holster that killer instinct and reconnect with his humanity, those qualities that were taken from him with the Phnom Penh bombing. And so Marie, in effect, exercises Webb and vanquishes Jason Bourne from his personality. The end. No sequel. That is the story. And that was the plan, according to Bloodlum, back in 1980 anyway, and I believe him. I mean, keep in mind, none of the author's previous 11 books were written to have sequels, and his next two books, The Parsifal Mosaic in 1982 and The Aquitaine Progression in 1984, they were hits. They weren't the same size of hit as *Born Identity, but they both spent months atop the New York Times bestseller list, and There was no reason to believe that the Ludlum brand wasn't popular enough to continue without reoccurring protagonists. So why did the author's 15th novel end up being The Bourne Supremacy, his first sequel? Well, it just turns out that Webb and Bourne had the resume that fits the story Ludlum next wanted to tell. The author had been looking at world events for inspiration. It was the end of 1984. And he decided his next book had to be set in Asia after watching England strike a deal to hand over their colony Hong Kong to mainland China. We all started turning in Ludlam's head. He started thinking, what if some insurgent tried to lay claim to Hong Kong during this transitional period? He started imagining a ruthless Chinese nationalist with no loyalty to the Communist Party engineering a coup that could potentially thrust the East and the West into a World War III situation. It was a great hook, but Ludlam sensed that he needed an American as the protagonist in order to make these foreign politics relatable to his large American fan base. And David Webb not only had that extensive background in Asian culture, but he and alter ego Jason Bourne were characters that Ludlam readers knew, trusted, and loved. And certainly Ludlam's publisher was not going to talk him out of it. They weren't going to protest bringing back that hit split personality and doing it all again. But I am. I think that this is a very unfortunate conclusion that Ludlam has reached. I agree. The story he set out to tell in Hong Kong sounds really great. I wanted to read that story but unfortunately, by adding Jason Bourne into the mix, it means the author winds up retelling the Bourne identity in Asia, rather than giving full consideration to this new coup scenario that first captivated his imagination. Born Supremacy picks up one year after the events of the first book, with David Webb teaching Asian studies in an Ivy League college, and happily married to Marie. He has absolutely no trouble with Jason Bourne. He has pushed that killer out of his thoughts, and he is enjoying the life of domestic bliss that he also enjoyed in Cambodia before his first wife was killed. But because Bourne was known as an Asian hitman, in fact the best hitman in Asia, it's only natural that a pretender to the throne is going to want to co-opt that name drag Bourne out of retirement, basically call himself Jason Bourne, to drum up business. And the first scene of the novel depicts this wannabe laying waste to a closed-door meeting of Hong Kong crime lords and then leaving Jason Bourne's signature in blood next to the bodies, which is... What David Webb used to do, that was how they manufactured the sense that he was this killer, was that they would always leave his name at crime scenes. Only this guy is killing for real and using Bourne's name. When the CIA gets wind of this, they're caught in a bind. They believe the best person to track down this imposter is the original Jason Bourne. But calling him out of retirement means ruining David Webb's life and putting trust in a mentally unstable dual personality. I guess we can be grateful that at least they don't send a jet to Napalm Marie, but they do the next worst thing. They arrange to have her kidnapped, and they make it look like her abductor is a Hong Kong Taipan who is getting back at Jason Bourne for the rape and murder of his wife. Now, David knows he didn't do that, and so he he feels he can convince this kidnapper pretty easily of that, but first he has to catch the Jason Bourne imposter that is running amok in Hong Kong. This is a story with a lot of pretending going on, if you haven't noticed. Someone in Hong Kong is pretending to be born. The CIA is pretending they are Marie's Hong Kong kidnappers. David Webb is uh, reverting back to his pretend assassin identity, Jason Bourne. No one ever seems to do anything for real in this world. It's all ruses inside ruses, and it can get very convoluted and complex. So you've got to read every word. And I'm fine with it, honestly. Whatever contrivance Ludlam wants to create to get us into that plot about Hong Kong breaking off into a rogue nation that pits Brits against commies, I'm game for it. Except <laughs> Ludlam is way more preoccupied with Webb finding the born impostor than telling that story. Yes, we're eventually going to learn that wanna be born is working for the main villain insurgent of the story that wants to control a free Hong Kong, but that reveal doesn't come for hundreds and hundreds of pages, and most of this book is a note for note replay of the last one. Even worse. A substantial amount of these 680 pages are given to Marie, a character I haven't talked too much about yet because I only enjoy the Bourne identity when I ignore her. I'll be honest with you. I almost didn't recommend that first book because I absolutely couldn't stand the melodramatic exchanges between Webb and Marie. It was just... It was implausible. It was... Way over the top. It was just ugly to see this poor woman have to fall in love with her kidnapper, whose only saving grace was that he prevented other dangerous men from raping her while he's forcibly dragging her around the streets of Zurich trying to figure out who he is. And it was just unsettling that she was so willing to give up her career and abandon all her friends and family back home to swear allegiance to this nut job who claims to be a hired killer that everyone wants. And it's just hard not to look at Marie as using incredibly bad judgment. But even worse, it's that dialogue that really condemns her. I mean, and I quote, "'Leave me quickly or kill me. I don't care.'" But for God's sakes, love me, Jason, end quote. I mean, there are pages and pages of effusive, degrading pronouncements just like that one, littering every story beat of the Bourne Identity. And after a while, you just can't help feeling like Marie is more hollow and confused than the amnesiac. I mean, at least Webb had an excuse, right? I mean, why is she so empty? I never grow to like Marie, but I did accept that Ludlam wanted her to be Webb's happy ending. She had a function, even if she didn't have a soul. So I accepted her as the conclusion to that story. But to bring her back for a new adventure only so she could engage in the same hysterical codependent shtick and take away focus from the major storyline is simply unforgivable. Marie is going to spend most of this book separated from Webb, and yet she's in half of it, and she's going to make those same torrid pronouncements in her head again and again about how much she loves Webb and she must get back to him. Again, it just plays as just hammy soap opera. She never becomes her own person. I never see her as anything more than a tool being passed around. And everything she does is a holdover from Born Identity. For example, Marie escapes from her CIA captors early on, just as she got away from Webb early on in the first book. And she hasn't gotten more than a few blocks before, when you know it, someone is going to try to sexually assault her. Ick. I mean, yuck. I really didn't want to go back to that as a storyline. And last book, Marie reached out to a colleague in Canada for help, and it had ended up getting them shot at an airport. Well, she does the same thing here. She goes to a Canadian embassy and tries to get an old friend to understand what she's going through. And they end up getting blown up in a car. Meanwhile, Webb is caught in a very similar cycle of deja vu plotting as he hunts for the identity of the Jason Bourne imposter. A journey that will take him through lots of Hong Kong hotels and markets and chatting up all of these commoners before he finally goes to a casino in Macau, and then eventually over into the Iron Curtain into the People's Republic of China. In my head, I somehow expected the imposter to turn out to be Carlos the Jackal. Maybe I was crazy, but I actually thought that we would find out that the only person that could imitate Bourne, that the revenge for going after him with the false identity of Bourne, would be to use that against him. But At the very least, I expected this wannabe to be as formidable as Carlos. But no, after all the effort that Webb goes into finding this guy, he just winds up being some random British hooligan who killed 12 people in a bar fight and is now on the lam. And the only reason he even knows the name Jason Bourne is because he was taught to be him by Philippe D'Anjou better known as Echo. He was one of Webb's fellow soldiers in Medusa, way back in Vietnam. And then improbably, they also met again in The Born Identity because Dionjou was working as a telephone operator at Carlos's French fashion house. I don't want to go back to that. But the point is, is that when that all went bad for D'Anju, he had to find a new line of work. And so he just found this reckless British man and said hey do you want to be an assassin and then trained him to be born and this wannabe ended up working for the bad guy of born supremacy honestly if you weren't going to make the imposter Carlos make him De why make it a random third guy that just seems like a wimp that isn't really trained as a soldier I mean a fellow Medusan might be formidable. Carlos, we know, is formidable. This guy just looks like a pawn, and honestly, it takes a long time for Webb to catch up with him, but he's able to apprehend him, and the guy ends up getting killed quite easily. I can't see a good reason for making all these callbacks. Bloodlum had already put Medusa, Treadstone, and maybe even Carlos to bed, so... He really should be talking about the controlling British and Chinese influences in Hong Kong. He really needs to be focused on what he wanted to tell, which is to say that he should be spending a majority of this tale with Bourne uncovering the secrets of Xingqiu Yang, who is a closet capitalist in communist China and who is believing that he can destabilize Hong Kong by killing powerful taipan shipping magnets and then controlling the ports and then using the army that he's turned on his side to rule the place as a breakaway state. Not unlike the fleeting glimpses we got of Carlos in the last book, there are actually only two major scenes with Sheng in this very long book. And that, quite simply, is not enough. We get him about 400 pages in when Bourne stumbles upon a political rally in which Ching is committing mass executions of dissidents, really establishes that the guy as very, very evil and psychopathic, and then he disappears for 300 more pages until Bourne is going to find him at a face-off at an airport. And that's just not enough. That does not cut it. It also doesn't help that Bourne never seems to figure anything out for himself, that he just keeps running into a series of characters who tell him and then retell him all of these plots, that we don't see him as a good detective, and I guess he never was trained to be a detective, he was trained to be a marksman and a soldier, but I wanted this guy to be smart. We know David Webb is smart, so why isn't Jason Bourne smart? He's street smart. He stays out of trouble. He stays one foot ahead of of the bad guys. But I just don't see that he does anything other than bumble into concierges and chauffeurs and, you know, street vendors, a series of people. It's like he talks to everyone in China before he figures out who Shang really is. Now, you're hearing me complain a lot, and that's because I'm disappointed. But the news is not all bad. Ludlam still manages to make quite a few scenes here spark, even when they're overly familiar. I am impressed by the fact that the author, in doing his research, always made a point about visiting the locations of the story. And so it comes off authentically when. We get to China, and I'm someone that has not had the opportunity to travel there yet, but would very much like to. I feel transported by all the details offered. There's a great little scene in which Bourne actually goes to Mao Zedong's crystal tomb and gets in a shootout with guards. And more stuff like that would have really kept my interest in this novel. I wouldn't have been so frustrated, uh, you know. If it had focused on saving Hong Kong and not saving Marie or debunking a wannabe born, this would have been a winner. These opportunities just don't come frequently enough for me to endorse Born Supremacy. It is, unfortunately, a not recommend. It is definitely not an improvement over the last book. And, you know, maybe I'm just a little disappointed. That what I thought was going to happen, a rematch between Bourne and Carlos, did not materialize here in Hong Kong. I'm going to get that wish granted, though. There is still one more book to cover. Ludlum's final novel, The Bourne Ultimatum in the series, is going to be reviewed next week. It's 740 pages long, so get cracking now. It's going to take you a while to get through it. But when you're ready, join me next week. I hope you tag along to see how it all goes down. Until then, keep reading, and thanks for listening.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Books and Nachos. You can also find many more book reviews at our website, booksandnachos.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please help spread the word about our podcast by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. Books and Nachos is a crowdsourced podcast with no sponsors or ads. You can support our show by pledging to our Podbean campaign at booksandnachos.com slash support. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, provided by PodsafeAudio.com. Books and Nachos is a Vinganza Media Production, copyright 2016, all rights reserved. And no part of the show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated.